And Heavenly Father, that's what we long to experience, the work of your Spirit with freedom and power in our midst. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us to be your children. We have been regenerated and washed and indwelt by the Spirit of God, and now, now he leads us, giving us power, causing us to please you. And we pray, may the Spirit of God have free course in our midst today. For those who may be listening over the internet, Lord, we pray that you would work in their hearts as well. And may your word, which is not bound, work across county, state, lines, in every nation. Glorify yourself in our midst. And may we rejoice in the goodness of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'd like to encourage you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're continuing our series on a faith worth following. And this is bringing us to the end of our study in 1 Thessalonians. We've been working at it since fall, and now we've come to the last chapter and almost to the last portion of Scripture. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to this church, is now giving them some final instructions. It's almost as though these are randomly thrown together, but they're not. There's great intentionality. And the more we study them, the more we see that the Apostle Paul has a purpose. Maybe it's answering some of the issues in that particular church in that day. We don't know. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, we know that he was answering letters from them and specifically addressing certain issues. He may be doing the same thing here, but he may be simply dealing with issues that are true for Christians in any age in every church. It seems to be that what he gives us here are marching orders that are cross-generational, spanning the errors of time and ought to be the core and heartbeat of every church. We noticed last week, beginning with verse 12, this is 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 12, and I'm reading from the New American Standard. It may be a little different from your translation. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And if you do this, live in peace with one another. Peace will be the result. So we noticed last week Paul's addressing the church, and he's saying you need to know how to relate to those who lead you. They need to be teaching the Word of God in truth and in love, and you need to respond with respect and obedience. And if that's the kind of flow going on in the local church, there will be peace. And that's God's great desire that we would experience the peace of God, not just personally, but corporately. He goes on to say in verse 14, not only do we need to know how to relate to those who lead us, but those who need us. And he mentions three groups of people in the church. Verse 14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, those who are out of step with God. They're marching to the beat of a different drummer and not to the pounding of Scripture, not to the cadence of the Word. 
Secondly, encourage the faint-hearted. These are people who are easily intimidated and fearful. They lack courage to step out in obedience to the Word of God. Encourage those people. Fortify them. And then thirdly, the group that needs help because they're weak. Easily given into temptation, it doesn't take much to get them to fall. And so you need to come beside them. Put an arm around them. Keep them from falling. Help those who are weak. And in all three of these categories, show great patience. When a church is like that, there'll be wonderful peace in the midst of the body of Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Those who lead us, those who need us, and those who wrong us, you need to know how to respond to them. Of course, this church was under great persecution. So what do you do to those who are persecuting the faith and in particular making your life miserable? Well, the Bible tells us in verse 15, see that no one repays another evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. Seek to be kind to all the believers and indeed even to those who aren't believers. That's the fruit of the Spirit, and that's how you respond, with great kindness. Now, Paul says in the next three verses a, a group of commands that probably should be clumped together. In fact, in the original grammar, these are all plural verbs, and it seems like now Paul is moving on to another focus. And these are the commands that are true always. Some commands that Christians receive are good commands, for this situation or that. But notice verse 16, rejoice always. Verse 17, pray always, or pray without ceasing. Verse 18, give thanks always, or in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It seems to be that this explanatory phrase, the will of God, mentioned in verse 18, really refers to all three of these commands because they are bracketed by grammar and they form a united whole. So it's the will of God for you to be joyful and it's the will of God for you to be prayerful and it's the will of God for you to be thankful. Why? Because you're in Christ. And that's what in Christ people do. He goes on for some other commands. Verse 19, don't quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, the preaching of the word. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. Not from every appearance of evil. That would be impossible. But from every kind of evil. Evil in every expression. Avoid that kind of of evil, all kinds. Now, we don't have time to go through all of these admonitions, so I just want to take those three that form a unified message, 16, 17, and 18, the, the always commands. For this is the will of God for you today. You and I often are very concerned about the will of God in important but secondary matters. Matters like uh, what job should I take or who should I marry or where should I live? Should I take the operation or not take the operation? All important questions to be sure, but I say those are secondary. The primary prerequisite questions are 
the will of God clearly revealed in the, the Word for all the people of God. And if you don't fulfill the prerequisites, my friend, you'll have a rough time understanding the will of God in the secondary matters. We rush to the secondary matters, and our minds are filled with confusion, and God says, what about the primary matters? So here are the primary matters. They cut deep, but they're so vital if a church is going to be effective in doing work for the Lord Jesus Christ and advancing his kingdom. So the first one is this idea of rejoice always. The New Living Translation says, always be filled with joy. Eugene Peterson's message, which is a paraphrase, it's not a translation. A paraphrase is like a Bible commentary. Nothing wrong with using it as long as you understand that it's the Word of God filtered through the mind of man. It's one man's perspective. And it may be good, but it's not like a, a clear literal or authentic translation. But I like his commentary. He says, be cheerful no matter what happens. Be thankful, happy in your faith at all times. That's the command. And it is a challenging one to be sure. Now, we're somewhat surprised that this would come from the Apostle Paul because he was a man who knew a lot of conflict. This is the guy that was beaten and stoned lost his life, and wherever he went, he seemed to be in trouble. And they persecuted him from country to country. In fact, before he got to the city of Thessalonica, he stopped at a, another city in northern Greece, in Macedonia, called Philippi. And after that visit, he wrote a letter to the church, and we call that book, or the letter, the Book of Philippians. So Paul gets on this European soil, and he immediately goes to Philippi, and he has great ministry there, but he is apprehended by the magistrates. And there's something of a kangaroo court where he is unjustly treated, and he's thrown into prison. You can read the story in Acts chapter 16. He's in prison in Philippi. What would you do if you were thrown into prison doing the work of God? I think I would have a tendency to complain. I think I would say, Lord, here I am doing your work, and some good things were happening, and people were coming to Christ, and now I'm thrown into prison. I was treated unjustly. I was beaten, and I didn't deserve it. And there goes the gospel. The word's not going to get out now. Here I am in prison. I'm quite creative when it comes to complaining. I'd have a whole list of things I'd come up with. But what does Paul do? Acts 16.25 says the apostle Paul prayed... When he was thrown into prison, it was midnight, and he was praying. I'd do that too, but I think my prayers would sound a little bit different than Paul's. Paul was praying, and he was singing hymns of praise. Wouldn't you like to know what hymns he was singing? I would. I think it would be great for the church to, to gather back those hymns. But we do know this. They were hymns with rich theology to them that focused on how good God is and glorified his name. And the Bible says the prisoners were watching. Acts 16, 25. They were viewing everything that was taking place. They were listening, as well as the guards. So Paul was ministering, but in a different place. Of course, you know the rest of the story. An earthquake takes place. The guard pulls out his sword. He's going to take his life, because if you're a Roman guard and you lose your prisoners, you lose your life. 
But Paul says, don't kill yourself. We're still here. And the guard comes running in, falls on his knees, and what does he say? What must I do to be saved? How can I have what you have? I've heard you sing. I've learned the theology, maybe from your sermons, maybe from your songs. But I've seen your trust in God when you have been unjustly abused. And I want what you have. Give me Jesus And God uses this horrible situation in the life of the Apostle Paul to bring the jailer and his family to Christ. And a church is born. Paul knew what it was to be joyful in the midst of persecution. Church at Thessalonica is undergoing great persecution. And Paul says to them, I want you to be filled with a spirit of joy. Few things in the New Testament are more remarkable than this continual stress on joy because the early church had nothing and they were persecuted everywhere. And yet they're told on over and over again, produce this wonderful spirit of joy wherever God leads you. What's the secret? Paul's secret was simply this. He didn't see himself in prison. He saw himself in Christ. Look at the last part of verse 18. This is God's will for you who are in Christ. Are you in Jesus? This is Paul's way to describe a person who's saved, whose sins are forgiven, and they've been given the gift of eternal life. If you are saved, you are in Christ, and the in Christ crowd needs to live like Christ. And this is how the in in Christ crowd respond. When difficulties come, they're filled with joy. And so his focus was not so much being in prison. It was more of being in Christ. In church history, there's a delightful character that comes to us from the late 1700s. He was a Cornish miner, lived in Cornwall, England, He lost his father at a young age, so he had to live with his grandfather, who happened to be a Methodist, saved, brought to saving faith by John Wesley. And Billy Bray grew up in this Methodist home, and he did not like the gospel. As soon as he could, he left his grandfather's home and lived by himself in Devonshire, where he became famous for his drinking. Everyone knew what a drunk Billy Bray was. Thought he'd get married, and that might take care of his drinking problem, but it didn't. And almost every night, his wife had to go to the uh, drinking house after hours, when it had closed, and drag her drunken husband home. That was Billy Bray. But at some point, he gave his heart to Christ. The work of his grandfather in sharing the gospel ultimately bore fruit. And when Billy Bray got saved, like the old-timers used to say, He got saved. I mean, it took. And Billy Bray became one of the happiest believers you could ever find. He was notorious for being so happy. Everywhere he would go, he'd be singing out the praises of God. And Billy, people would say, Billy, why don't you quiet down? You can't sing very well. He says, I know I don't sing very well, but the God who made the lark and the nightingale likes the songs of them both. 
And he who made me is going to hear me sing because he delights in my song. He would shout out praises. He said, I can't help it. Every time I walk, I put one foot down and it says glory. I put the next foot down and it says amen. And the more I walk, they just keep saying amen and glory. Billy Bray, he, uh, he would dance sometimes too. He'd just get so happy he'd do a jig. And people criticized him for that. And he'd come back with scripture, David dancing before the Lord and the lame man who was healed danced before the Lord. And he just was filled with the joy of God. They said, how come? How come you are so filled with the joy of God? There's such a song in your heart. And he said this, something like this. He said, I cannot help but think of God's divine favor to me. I once was lost and in sin. Now I'm saved and in Christ. Oh, he was just so filled with joy. Now the church he attended wasn't always so filled with joy. One time at a testimony meeting when people were complaining about all their difficulties, he stood up and he laughed and smiled and clapped his hands. And he said, well, I take vinegar and honey in my life too. He said, but I take the vinegar with a spoon and the honey with a ladle. And you ought to be praising God for his goodness to you. Just filled with the joy of the Lord. How? Because he focused on divine favor. I am in Christ, not in trouble. Or I might be in trouble too, but being in Christ dominates whatever situation I find. The joyful heart Here's a great quote. This joy, amidst pain and persecution, was one of the great marks of genuine, early, primitive Christianity. And it not only amazed the world, it drew the world to Christ. Sometimes our churches are so gloomy and so miserable, we would never attract the world to Christ. But, but once we get the spirit of joy, which, by the way, is the fruit of the spirit, Galatians chapter 5, when the spirit fills us, joy is a result. Happiness is not the same thing as joy. Happiness is too dependent upon circumstances. Joy overcomes the circumstances. It's in spite of them. It's the joy of the Lord that is your strength. And when you are filled with joy, think of it, in the midst of a difficult time, that's when the world sees your light and glorifies God in heaven. If you turn your light on at the height of the noonday sun, very few people will see it. If you turn your light on at the darkness of midnight, people will see your light for miles around. God is sometimes going to pick you and I up out of our favorable circumstances and put us into a prison so that our light can shine more brightly. And the world will be attracted. And like the Philippian jailer, I've heard your theology. I've heard your praise, and I see you filled with joy in the midst of difficulty. I want what you have. It's interesting that the the word for grace in the Greek is karas. The word for joy is kara. The two words share the same root in the original. 
which means when you are touched by grace, you must be filled with joy. And when you focus on the grace of God in the gospel and the divine favor that is yours in Christ, when you see that perspective, your heart cannot be but anything of joy. It has to be filled with praise. It has to be filled with celebration. Some people believe that these three commands are meant to be for public worship. Indeed, the following verses begin to focus on corporate setting. And so some say Paul is telling the church in Thessalonica how to do worship services. And this is what he says, be joyful, be prayerful, be thankful. Those are great commands. John Stott takes this position, and he says, For the interest of spontaneity in worship services, we often lack content and form. We just want to let the Spirit lead, so we don't plan. Our services are slovenly, mindless, irreverent, and dull. This is coming from an Anglican, by the way, where they don't do a lot of jumping or clapping or whatever. He says, it is, is it a... It is a mistake to imagine that, e that um, either that freedom and form exclude one another, that you can't have them together, or that freedom is somehow the enemy of form. He says, many of our church services are unforgivably gloomy, boring, although it's always appropriate to worship God with awe and humility, yet every service should be a service of celebration, a joyful rehearsal of what God has done for us and what God has given to us in Christ. So let the organ and the trumpet and the drums sound out loud. Roman Anglican. Once in a church like that, I think it was a Presbyterian church. I'm not trying to put the Presbyterians down. Let's say it was Anglican or Baptist. Uh, they wanted, the preacher wanted joy to be expressed in the service, but you know, there wasn't much joy, uh, visible, verbal in the service. So he gave everyone a helium balloon. And he said, while the service is going on, when your heart is touched with joy, let the balloon go. Because you don't want to say anything, you don't want to stand up, you don't want to clap. <laughs> and so during the service, balloons went up. The interesting thing was when the service was over, one-third of the balloons were still in the hands of the people. Nothing in that whole service brought any joy. Either that was a lousy service, or those people aren't in touch with the Christ. Are you in Christ? Be joyful. Well, we've got to go on. Prayerful is the next one from verse 17. Pray without ceasing does not mean always mumbling a prayer. It certainly does not mean perpetual prayer in a formal mode. Head bowed, eyes closed, hands clasped, knees down. That'd be impossible. So what does it mean? It means always in the attitude or spirit of prayer. Or never stop praying. Be devoted to regular praying. Chuck Swindoll put it this way. Pray with the frequency of a hacking cough. <laughs> now, that didn't sound very lovely, but it's pretty accurate. What's a hacking cough? Well, it's something, you know, I have this tickle in my throat, and I can't get rid of it. I can't ignore it, so I kind of hack it out. I'm okay for a while until the tickle comes back, and then I've got to pray. Pray with the frequency 
of a constant tickle in the throat that makes you respond. Bishop Lightfoot said it, it doesn't mean prayer that it, it's not found, the essence of prayer is not found in the moving of the lips, but the elevation of the heart to God. That's what is so important. David Williams, not the one who pastored across town, but the one who was the principal of Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia, and one of the translators of the NIV translation 1984, says this about prayer. Prayer acknowledges our utter dependence upon God and the utter dependability of God in every situation. That's a great quote. Prayer confesses, acknowledges, that I am utterly dependent upon God and that God is utterly dependable. What does the lack of prayer confess? I don't need God, and if I did, I can't count on him coming through. Wow. Your lack of prayer is a declaration of independence from God. Your lack of prayer is a question mark on every promise of his, of his word. We better get praying. By the way, notice chapter 5, verse 24. Go down in the text just a little bit. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will do it. He'll bring it to pass. He'll make sure it happens. There's not one promise in the word of God that is not yea and amen, already fulfilled, so be it, it will happen. Not one of the promises is lacking its mate fulfillment. When God promises, he performs. And so if you believe you're dependent upon God, then you're going to be praying. If you believe that God is dependable, then you're going to be praying. Paul put it this way in Romans 12, we should be rejoicing in hope, persevering in trials, and devoted to prayer, Romans 12, 12. The persistent widow is a great story that Jesus told. He said, men should always pray and not give up, which is the same command that Paul's giving here. Always pray, never give up. So Jesus tells the story of a widow who has some friends that come over and she needs some bread, doesn't have any, so she goes over to her neighbor's house. It's late at night. She knocks on the door. He says, go away. She said, but I have some friends here. They need some bread. I don't have any. But have any. He says, I'm sleeping. I'm not going to get up. She continues to knock. He finally gets up, gives her bread, and she goes on her merry way. Thus, the teaching of the parable is this. God is a reluctant giver, and you've got to bug him before he'll give you anything. If you really pester him enough, you'll wake him up out of his sleep. And he'll reluctantly give to you what you need. That's how some people interpret the parable. It's ridiculous. This is one of those parables whose first line of application goes like this. How much more will the God who loves you give you whatever you need? You don't have to pester him. And then he tells a story. If a son asks his father a piece of bread, is he going to give him a stone or a scorpion? Of course not. And that's why you should not give up on praying because God delights to bless you. He is dependable. And yet the church of Jesus Christ is almost, almost, a, almost a prayerless church. Prayerful. 
By the way, if you want to be joyful and you say, I don't know how I can do it, the answer is be prayerful. These are all connected. When you begin to pray and cast your burden upon the Lord, 1 Peter 5, 7, he cares so much for you, he's going to deal with that situation. Cast your burdens on the Lord. Be released from your burden. Put it in his hands, and then you'll be joyful. So prayerfulness is the path to joyfulness. Joy is based on understanding you're in Christ and taking advantage of the blessings of Christ through prayer. But there's one final thing, and that is verse 18. Always be joyful, always be prayerful, always be thankful. In everything, give thanks. This is God's will, too, for you, for you who are in Christ Jesus. Arising out of this recognition of the sovereignty of God and his loving providence is a spirit of gratitude. The foundation for joy, we're in Christ. The reason to pray, we're dependent upon God and he's utterly dependable. The foundation of gratitude, it needs to rise out of an understanding that God is sovereign and his providence, although it hides a smiling face, the smiling face is there. And God has good purposes for you. I know the plans you have for me. I know the future. It's not destruction, but it's a blessing, a future, and a hope. Jeremiah 29. And what he said to Israel is true for every child that he redeems. He loves you. He saved you by his grace. He made you his own. He calls you by his name. He will not let you go. And whatever happens to you is first filtered through divine sovereignty and loving providence. Our response is not the stoical indifference. Okay, I'll put up with it. I'm not happy about it, but I'll endure it. No, it's overcoming thankfulness. Paul's thanksgiving, his spirit of joy, is because of the presence of God. Chapter 3, verse 9 in, in 1 Thessalonians brings all of these together, prayer and joy and gratitude, all found in that one verse. It was the theme of the apostle's life. Now, we cannot thank God for all circumstances, but we can thank God in all circumstances. That's an important differentiation. I will not thank God for the tragedy. I will not thank God for the sin. I will not thank God for the horrible circumstance that has taken place that robs a young girl of her innocence that takes a young life unjustly. We do not rejoice in for the circumstance, but we rejoice in the midst of them because God is going to do an amazing thing. God has a plan to use the darkness to spread his light. God is sometimes going to take us from the difficulties of life and put us or from the, from the favorable situations of life and put us in difficulties so that we can shine for him. Madame Guion, a French mystic, as she is described, she's French, and the word mystic refers, at least uh, the good definition, there's a bad definition of mysticism, but the good definition of Christian mystic is someone who 
who walks with God in such a real and personal way. It's as though he literally is by them. He is. <laughs> Although they can literally see him and literally talk with him. The experience has become so real. She was thrown into prison for her faith. Listen to what she says in a poem. Strong are the walls around me that hold me all the day, but they who thus have bound me cannot keep God away. My very dungeon walls are dear because the God I love is here. They know who thus oppress me, tis hard to be alone, but know not he can bless me who comes through bars and stone. He makes my dungeon darkness bright and fills my bosom with delight. Wow. That's being thankful in every circumstance. When Daniel heard that the writing, the decree had been proclaimed that anyone who prays to another god will be thrown into the lion's den, he went back to his chamber, opened up his windows toward Jerusalem, and prayed like he did every day, giving thanks. Daniel 6.10. How do you get that kind of attitude? It comes from remember, remembering you are in Christ and nothing touches you that divine sovereignty is not allowed. And God's providence for you, although it may seem severe, and it may be, and it may appear dark with clouds, and it is, behind there is a smiling face. For God's almighty love is yours. Romans chapter 1, verse 29 says, The heathen are thankless. Those who hate God lack gratitude. Although they knew God, Romans 1, 21, they did not glorify him as God, neither were they thankful. They became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's true of the heathen, heathen, and we can understand that. What about Christians? A joyless Christian, a prayless Christian, a thankless Christian? Those are oxymorons. They don't go together. If you are in Christ, be joyful. Be prayerful. Be thankful. Because the one who loves you more than you love yourself is watching over every circumstance and he will order and harmonize all things so that they will turn out for good if you love him, if you're one of the called according to his purpose. Are you in Christ? This is God's will for you. Don't have to ask, don't have to worry. This is God's will for you today. And you'll be surprised what God wants to do through your difficulty. Young Arturo, only 19 years old, could hardly see. His nearsightedness was almost blindness, but he loved music, played the cello, and actually got hooked up with a small European orchestra. But he couldn't read the music because his eyesight was so bad, so he memorized the entire symphony, score after score, line after line. One night he came to the concert and the conductor was deathly ill and didn't, didn't uh, show up. And so they said, we're going to gonna have to close the concert. Is there anyone who can conduct? Does anyone know the symphony? Arturo was the only one who knew the entire score. So they said, kid, you're conducting. 
He stood up that night before the audience and before the orchestra and led with brilliance, never looking at his music. The audience noticed that. Didn't miss a beat. At the end, the audience rose and clapped enthusiastically for young Arturo, and the people said, this kid's good. And they gave him another chance and another chance, and he became Arturo Toscanini, one of the world's greatest conductors, which never would have happened had he not been almost blind. And what does God want to do through you to make an impact even worldwide of the gospel reaching to hearts that need him? What does God want to do through you that he wouldn't do unless you had an opportunity in darkness to be joyful and prayerful and thankful. Let's pray. Lord, this is your will for us. It's not easy, but it's clear. May your spirit so fill us that we can, by your grace, be obedient. Help us, Lord, to live such lives even in the midst of challenges that people will see our trust and dependence upon you they will see the joy and the gratitude and like a magnet be drawn to Christ because of it. Thank you for your word, Lord. Help it to be a reality in our midst. In Jesus' name. Amen.